Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Around the world, the calls have begun to build back better. The slogan, or some variant of it, is ubiquitous. Even as we continue to manage life during the pandemic, we start to look beyond it, towards something better. At least we hope. In Canada, the idea of a universal basic income has been circulating for decades. However, as the discussions and debates around our post-pandemic world pick up, it's an idea that is enjoying a moment. And so on this episode we ask, should Canada adopt a universal basic income? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Armin Yalnesian, Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Work at the Atkinson Foundation. Let's start with a rundown of, of what a universal basic income is and what it entails, both in a general sense, but also in the particular way that, that you imagine it. So let's start here. How would a UBI work in Canada? Great question, David. And frankly, there are as many definitions as people talking about UBI. Um, it is always about redistribution, but it is not always about solving the same problem. So sometimes it's about solving poverty. Sometimes it's about reducing red tape. Sometimes it's about saving money. Sometimes it's about dealing with precarious work and bargaining power and dignity. Um, but what's always unclear is how much are we talking about? Is it more than we're spending now, the same or less? Uh, that's always a good question to ask somebody that um, is talking about it. In fact, the question, the three big questions about UBI, if you want to know what people mean when they're talking about it, is how much are you talking about? Who is it that's supposed to get it that's not getting it now? Because don't forget, we do have a basic income for children and a basic income for seniors. Um, and who is going to pay for it? Uh, so those three questions will tell you a lot about what, what people mean when they say UBI. It's almost never universal, David. It's almost never universal in design. And um, I, I'm just going to leave it there because I don't have a view on what UBI should be. I don't think we should have one. That's my view. Right. And so now let's let's dig into why not in a, in a second, but I want to touch on a, on a couple of things. Uh, you know, in most of its imagined manifestations, a UBI would seem to either entail replacing or deeply uh, altering, reforming existing social welfare policies. So, you know, it, it's one of the concerns that we got all of these programs that we've got and replace it with something that doesn't function as well or doesn't serve as many people as well? Well, we've had four conversations about basic, uh, some version of basic income in Canada um, since the Second World War. And by the way, the idea of a UBI or a guaranteed income goes back hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, depending on how you read history. But in Canada, we've had two pilots and two very strongly proposed models for how we could proceed. And the two pilots where we've actually done the exercise of the min uh, minimum income is in Manitoba in, from 1974 to 1978. And that was 
not a universal basic income, but a pilot for how that could look. And then in 2017, uh, the Ontario basic income pilot that the incoming conservative government pulled the plug on. That was really about improving social assistance. So I'm not sure what you meant by, you know, uh, reforming social welfare, because social welfare goes beyond social assistance. But the term welfare, which is social assistance, has we've been talking about reforming that since the late 80s. And this was kind of like the politically correct way of talking about raising social assistance rates effectively, though it wasn't just targeted to people who were receiving social assistance or might have been eligible for it. In both cases, the Manitoba Mincome and the Ontario Basic Income Pilot, the plug was pulled by a conservative government that decided it was too expensive to do. And frankly, that's the story everywhere we have had pilots. There is only one jurisdiction that has a universal basic income that I can think of, which is Alaska, and it is in the order of about $1,200. And it's essentially a dividend on oil revenues. So it really isn't about a guaranteed income that is supposed to be lifting people out of poverty. It's basically, we're going to distribute the revenues from the royalties on our oil uh, industry. We had two other uh, basic income proposals um, in Canada. One was um, with the McDonald Commission in 1985, and that was on the future of Canada's economy, which which was a very uh, kind of neoliberal and libertarian view of how the economy should proceed, being export driven and actually reducing the cost of the state by rolling up all federal income supports and offering one stipend per adult and per child. And the amounts in 1985 of rolling up everything, EI, all the income supports, OAS, GIS, all of those things, was a royal $2,750 per adult per year and $759 per child. How they came, oh, sorry, $750 per child. And that's roughly in today's dollars, around $5,000 per adult and around $1,500 per child. Uh, and we've done a lot better per child right now. The maximum you can get with the Canada Child Benefit is not $1,500, but about $6,700. So you can see that we have decided to target instead of provide universal benefits. And that makes a huge difference to child poverty. The second proposal was the House report that came out of Newfoundland in 1993. And the 1980s were brutal to Newfoundland because of the collapse of the cod stock. And one of the ways that um, the Newfoundland government tried to deal with the fact that so many people were out of work and needed income support was to pitch to the federal government that they send all of their income supports to the provincial government in one package and that the provincial government give every adult $3,000 and every child $1,500, which translates to even less than the McDonald Commission uh, suggestion. It's like under $5,000 per adult and a little bit better for kids, $2,400 per child in today's terms. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you. What I'm saying is all of these things are, there's no way you can survive on this. Like, there is absolutely no way this is about liberate. first of all, getting rid of poverty or giving you bargaining power. It may help you uh, to have a bit of a financial cushion, uh, and that should not be underestimated. But this is not about 
uh, liberating you from the need to work. And it is not about lifting you out of poverty. So we, if that's your goal around UBI, we have never seen anything that looks like that, except briefly under MinCom. And even that was not super generous. So, you know, the, the, I mentioned the, uh, the most of the imagined manifestations of UBI to try to get at the sort of libertarian argument. I, I, you know, some folks will know this, others will be shocked to hear it for the first time, but it has uh, quite a lot of support among libertarians. I mean, F.A. Hayek, for instance, was a fan of it, proposed in 1979 uh, to, to provide, you know, a basic insurance scheme. And so my, my sense is that in that imagined manifestation, it is meant to be supplemented with work anyway. So are we, are we sort of imagining a UBI that was never meant to be a, a complete supplement to labor, but was meant to sort of complement it and act as a sort of backstop? I mean, is there a way that you could complement a UBI with labor uh, and make it work from there? Oh, for sure. You can always offer. I mean, that's effectively where we're going with the Canada Workers' Benefit, um, which is basically an apology for your job being so shit. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll supplement it to some degree. It's a very slippery slope because what it does is um, not only help poorly paid workers um, put together enough income to survive, but it also is a, a bit of a nod and a wink to employers that provide really crappy jobs. It would, um, in the counterfactual, it would be creating more jobs that are just like that. So it's like you're on a bit of a treadmill if that's your approach. The real important thing about UBI is, as I, you know, as we started off, is like it is a kind of politically correct way of talking about social welfare reform, where social welfare, we were talking about improving it. I mean, it, in some sense, UBI is like the idea of a basic income is the unfinished business of the social welfare state um, efforts in the 1960s. And they ended in 19, in the very early 70s before the two oil price shocks. But that's basically what killed them. Stagflation and the two oil price shocks made, you know, the cupboard bare for doing anything big and grand. Um, and so what, we're going to come back to the who pays for it later because the who pays for it depends on how much is it, right? Uh, but the idea that uh, basically UBI cannot be viewed as simply a supplement to crappy wages um, and bad jobs. In fact, it is far more important to lift you know, to boost the economy from the bottom up to help people that are unable to work or like either chronically or episodically. Um, and that it can't be a replacement for all the forms of income support that we have for the working age, because there are some people that can work. There are some people that can't work. There are some people that can work, but not full-time full year because of disabilities, because of illness. Uh, there are people that get laid off from work. UBI is not the answer to all four of those situations. During the working age, you can have a basic income for children and for seniors because they're too young and too old to work. But then in the working age, it requires something a little bit more complex than just simply a, a check that is cut. But I'll tell you, everybody's dreaming of 
a UBI because of the pandemic. And in Canada, one of the most common questions that came out in March or April is why not just cut everybody a $2,000 check, which was the amount of yep. CERB. So it really kind of ignited a conversation of UBI again. And I'll tell you why. You can't cut everybody a $2,000 check as a form of annual universal basic income because it would cost $24,000 a year. And if it was two people in a household living together, we're talking about an annual universal guaranteed income of $48,000 a year. Who the heck is going to pay for that? I'll tell you who's going to pay for it. Other workers. Big um, spoiler alert, on the other side of the pandemic, we're looking at population aging. It was happening before anyway. And so, you know, do you remember that as we went into the pandemic, in the months before the pandemic, every month there was this kind of breathless reporting of the labor force survey in both Canada and the U.S., historically low unemployment rates, they would say, the lowest since records began being kept in 1976. So for basically half a century, we hadn't seen such low unemployment rates. You know why? Tightening labor markets because more people are exiting than entering. Falling fertility rates for decades, and the baby boomers are finally starting to exit the system. And that, that game is not over. And when the pandemic is done on the other side, we are moving into an era where we're going to have the smallest working age cohort that we have seen in half a century, propping up the biggest cohort of people too young, too old, and too sick to work than we have ever seen in history, including seniors who have been coddled by their parents, like basically boomers that have been given everything from literally cradle to grave. So they're expensive. I'm expensive. I'm a boomer. That they expect their quality of life to be kept up. So who's going to pay for $24,000 a year or $48,000 a year? This is, the, this is my question to the why not just cut everybody a $2,000 check crowd. The people that are going to pay for that are the workers. That's who pays the most in taxes. There aren't enough rich people to, to significantly increase taxation to cover this. $24,000 a year per working age person. You could tax some of it back for sure, but then it's not universal, is it? You get a $2,000 check every month, and then how much of it do you give back? So the design, the, the details are in the design of the thing, and uh, nobody agrees on the details. So you get these like simplistic questions like, why not just cut everybody a $2,000 check? Well, first of all, you wouldn't be reaching the people that most need it, the homeless. The people that don't file their taxes. Yeah. Well, I, I want to pick up on two pushback points. Uh, one, one semi-related, and one that's going to take us in a fun, exciting, uh, new direction. Let me start with the the simpler one. Uh, to play devil's advocate, because for just for the purpose of those listening, I, I'm I'm not sure what I think about this. The more I think about, it, the less inclined I am to to support it. But have we ceded ground on taxing the middle class that we could take back to support something like this? Uh, you know, I, I think the left especially has done this with the focus on wealth taxes and taxing corporations, both of which I support. They've sort of ceded along with the center taxation of the middle class. Is there something to be made up there or does that undo the whole point of the thing? 
by, as you sort of mentioned, taxing it back and rendering it not universal? Well, I think any UBI has to be not universal at the end of the day, unless you're doing an Alaska style. Here's a bunch of money from our oil revenues. Um, if we're doing anything that is based on redistribution, uh, then it has to get taxed back. There's just not enough people uh, working and will be working to pay for everybody getting that kind of money. Um, and there's no money tree out there to shake. Though it sure looked like it during the pandemic, didn't it? <laughs> like suddenly these $2,000 checks just appeared. But guess what? They were very time specific. They were about containing the contagion and making sure people weren't out there scrambling to, with, you know, side hustles to make enough to get by. So to your question about did we drop the ball on taxation? Well, the federal liberals, when they first came in, did this stupid, what they called the middle class tax cut, which was in fact the middle income bracket tax cut, which affected people not in the middle class at all, but the top. Well, actually, it affected people who were working full-time full year. So the middle of the income spectrum of people working full-time full year is near where that bracket starts. So maybe that's who they meant to uh, give a break to, but it really didn't help anybody below that income level, which is all the people you want to help. So tax cuts were not the way to do it, but we certainly um, foreclosed on a lot of revenue. Uh, and I think that was a real mistake and it will be, it will take a very long time to be able to get those taxes raised again uh, because the people that they most benefited were the top half of the distribution um, or more, right? That's actually the top third of the distribution. I just remembered the numbers, right? It's the top third of the income distribution is who got helped by the so-called middle-class tax cut. And, but nobody knows what middle class means, right? Well, you can measure it. There's, is that the sleight of hand? There's a thousand ways of measuring it, but this was not it. Yeah. You know, when you start yeah. at the second in income class bracket, you know you're already leaving out two thirds of the population that file taxes. Um, so there was no way you could define it as a middle class, what they did as a middle class tax cut. Um, and yes, income taxes have been raised, top marginal rates have been raised. Uh, since then in some jurisdictions, uh, but there, I mean, I hate to say this, there is a limit to how much you can tax people. Uh, I don't know that we're there yet, but we're getting closer to there. And we just don't have that many rich people in Canada. They're right. Like what we've got, I don't know if you know this, but Canada has long been noted in the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. There's 34 countries, I believe, in that grouping. And they're all pretty much modern industrialized nations. They're not all in Europe and, and North America, but they're mostly in Europe and North America. They're mostly our peer nations. And within this group, Canada is either the first or the second in ranking of low income, econ uh, sorry, low wage economies. We always are jockeying back and forth with the United States as to the share of the workforce that works for what's called low wages, which is two thirds of the median. And we have had, like, this is our history. So to, to take a low-wage economy and say you're going to only reward those that are doing well is nuts. 
Um, and so you can see why there's like this kind of urge to, can we support people at the bottom of the income spectrum better? And yes, we can, but I'm not sure it's only through income. Maybe it is, but it certainly isn't just, you know, there's many different ways you can put money in people's pockets. Um, and if you're going to reverse the tax cuts, which I think is what you're pointing to, um, you, you better have a plan on how you use that money. Um, and that money better be going to better basic services, not basic income. Uh, for example, Medicare is profoundly redistributed. It's probably the thing that most reduces the impact of income inequality in our entire social welfare system. And you know that if you had better access to affordable housing, affordable childcare, affordable pharmacare, affordable dental and vision care, affordable internet, you're literally putting money in people's pockets and giving them access to higher quality um, services. Uh, and the interesting thing is the price tag of doing all of that is roughly half of cutting everybody a check. So you're actually building solidarity instead of just raising the temperature for a tax, a potential tax revolt because somebody is paying more for something that they will never see. They will never, you know, you have to pay more taxes to be able to do a universal basic income. You can't do it out of our existing revenues unless you're doing something really small and taking something away from what we're already spending on. Uh, but uh, to ask somebody to pay more for something significant that somebody else is going to get and they're never going to get is never a good recipe for social solidarity. Now, and I want to do a, a very well, I, I say quick, but it might end up being not so quick. Diversion to MMT to to ask whether or not this is something we can just print our way out of, or or is the, the act of printing money for these purposes just going to create extraordinary inflationary pressure and render the whole thing useless? Okay, I think it's uh, an incorrect characterization of MMT as I understand it, and I'm not an expert as being about printing money. MMT basically says the government can do anything it wants to do, whether that's to tax cuts or introduce a new program, because literally by doing that thing, it creates ledgers of money. Yeah. That is different than printing money. And MMT does also say the only constraint at, for the sovereign issuer of funds, which is not a province, by the way, it's only the federal government in Canada, and the federal government in the United States. So there's only one jurisdiction that can do this, that can say we are going to do this thing and we are creating accounts to do it, or we are going to forego revenues to do it, to stimulate the economy. The whole idea behind MMT is if you want to clean up your environment, if you want to go to the moon, if you want to build the next cancer treatment, you can do that. If you are a federal government, you can devote resources to doing anything. What is it you want to do? So the point is not just to print money. Basic income, printing money to do basic income would only work if you said, and if you receive that basic income, we want you to do X, Y, or Z in return for that income, which is why MMT is often associated with the job guarantee, right? Like that, that's really um, it's not associated with a basic income. It's associated to a quid pro quo for the money. What are you doing with the money? Now, 
basic, there's a lot of people that love the idea of a basic income that say several things about receiving a basic income, that it, it liberates people to do unpaid work, caring work. Um, it liberates people to provide more volunteer time and more community service. It uh, liberates people to look for a better job so that they are, they're matching their skills better and they're not settling for the lowest wage. So like, there's all sorts of virtues in having a bit more money in your pocket. Don't get me wrong. But it is different than saying MMT will print money, so why can't we have a basic income? Because that money doesn't come with a plan for what is it that you are doing with the money other than distributing it. And that's, you're not buying a strategy there. You're just sprinkling money. MMT is all about what are you doing with the money? Governments can do whatever they want. What is your mission? Would the job guarantee then make more sense than a basic income if it was supplemented by programs like, say, pharmacare, childcare, and so on? Well, um, I, I have my problems with the job guarantee as it's defined. So this is also not a new idea. It's not, um, it, it goes back to the 1930s. And the way it's envisioned is as like the analog to um, unemployment insurance or jobless benefits as an automatic stabilizer. They see jobs as the automatic stabilizer, jobs that need to be done in a community that you can either hire more people or lay people off as the economy improves. So where I lose the plot, and it could be just my incorrect reading of it, is that if we need these jobs done in the community, we should not be content to see these jobs increase in number and shrink in number, depending on what the private sector is doing. We either need these jobs in the community or we don't. We either need to expand the public and community service part of the economy, or we don't. It shouldn't be a stabilizer thing, depending on how well the private sector is doing. So I wouldn't look at it as a job guarantee. I would look at it as actually if we improve public and community services, nonprofit services that support, that are the social infrastructure of our lives, that we need to be able to do all these other things. If we expand those, we get a, a double or a triple hit. Number one, we get better services that are cheaper, hopefully, because they're designed to be that way. Number two, we could be creating great jobs like this. And number three, we get tax revenues from the people who are working. So it seems to me like, uh, and you're creating a better foundation for potential growth. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but everybody's talking about potential growth. And, you know, whereas the Bank of Canada used to talk about potential capacity, um, uh, and that usually meant how much of our industrial plant is being used and how much is idled. People are starting to talk about potential capacity as human capacity. How much talent are we leaving on the table? How many people, like Stack Can, since this crisis began, has been publishing a metric that it never published before. It's called the labor underutilization rate. It's different from an unemployment rate because it includes people, it includes people who are working less than half their usual hours, and it includes people that are not in the labor force anymore. They've dropped out. And what makes somebody in the labor force or not is, are you looking for a job if you don't have one? There's a lot of people that have given up. They might want a job, but they've given up looking for it. 
at the moment. So combining these categories creates this new rate. And people are starting to talk about our primary underutilized resource is human. And that will be increasingly um, important as we go forward. And, you know, I have called this recession a she session because it kicked out more women than men at the beginning. And um, whereas women have caught up with men uh, now in the she recovery uh, has kind of matched the pace of the he recovery for many people, hasn't for low-wage workers, hasn't for part-time workers, and it hasn't for parents of children, uh, both men and, uh, men and women. Um, what's really fascinating here is we have one policy amenable uh, choke point to recovery, and that is childcare. So our schools will reopen. Uh, even if they shut down for a while, they will ultimately reopen because they're publicly funded and publicly delivered. But childcare is run like any other business. It's your choice if you have kids. It's your choice if you choose to work before they are school-aged. It's your choice what kind of childcare you get. And we're seeing more and more childcare centers falling in capacity, just like restaurants, just like other, other service sectors. They don't have enough business because people are, are, are unsure of the safety of these centers and people are not willing to spend this kind of money uh, if they can't be sure that their kids are safe. So losing revenue means having to shutter for many of these services. So suddenly we're starting to see a process of recovery that has got a, a choke point that is amenable to public policy solutions, which is being ignored, that could roll back women's gains in the labor market by decades if we're not careful. And that has huge implications for the future of work and who it is we're supporting and why we're supporting them. So if we're looking at this moment, then, and we want transformative labor capacity and equity, we want child care before, or universal child care rather than a UBI, for instance, then? Well, I wouldn't even call it universal child care, and I would really support the idea of early learning and child care, which was the language used in the throne speech, and I must say that gave me a little frisson of excitement, <laughs> because um, child care... I mean, it would be dead easy to throw money at childcare and turn it into another long-term care sector, which is a disaster. What we need is to invest in every child's learning capacity. Everything we know about neuroscience says the way we learn is established in the first few years of our life. And we are treating human development as a residual of whatever working parents can manage. What we should be doing is investing in every child's learning capacity so that every child enters school learning ready and every child is supported through school so that they never have to worry about dropping out, that they're meeting their potential. And we don't treat children and childcare seriously enough, but we'll have to because of population aging. It literally is the most scarce resource we've got, much more so than money. You know, like the last half century, governments have bent over backwards to attract capital. And the next half century, I would wager, since every rich country is dealing with population aging, and I know it's really hard to think about it right now because we've got so many people unemployed, but the future is lots of labor shortages. In fact, the future of work is not about the robots eating the jobs. The future of work is not having enough workers. And where are we going to get them from? 
and what will be their quality. And did, you know, we're going to reap what we sow right now. If we are not investing in our kids now, the, you know, some 10, 20, maybe 30% of our kids who are growing up in poverty now because of this crisis will not be operating at their full potential in 15 years when we need them, in 15 or 20 years when we need them. So it seems to me like we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. But to get back to your question, should it be universal childcare or universal income? I put my money down on, on basic services every day of the week. It has the highest return on investment. But having said that, there are too many people that are scrambling for incomes. And we do need to do something about social assistance. We do need to do something about minimum incomes you can get when you are jobless, but you have been working at the minimum wage. 55% of the minimum wage is not livable. So there are things we need to be doing to improve incomes for sure, but not as a universal strategy. What we need to be doing universally, universally is making sure everybody has access to all the social infrastructure they need to get about their lives. That means good housing, good childcare, good medical care. That includes dental, vision, mental care, uh, mental health care, and pharmacare. It means the internet, which isn't great everywhere in the country. You know, there's like a short list of things that if we guaranteed you got the best quality at the cheapest price because that's what you need to do your work, then we're off to the races. You know, we're the 10th largest economy in the world with a fraction of the population. However, we are not guaranteed to stay there. And if we don't take the social infrastructure needs of our population seriously, we're gonna slide that down that particular ranking mighty fast because there's plenty of other countries that get it. I wanna go back, what about the robots though? I mean, I, I wanna go back to this because I've seen proponents of UBI make the case that part of the rise of automation, not just in manufacturing, but increasingly in sort of white collar jobs, clerks and lawyers and so accountants and so on and so forth, uh, that there needs to be a net uh, to to act as a buffer or to catch all because of the rise of, of automation. Can you decouple that solution from that problem? It sounds, I mean, it sounds to me like you probably can. But what would that look like? Because, I mean, I, even if it isn't the problem, it does seem to be a problem. 100% true. And it, it, it is a human storyline that I personally have been through in my career three times now, that the robots are going to eat all of the jobs. And on the other side, and basic income always gets raised in this context. And on the other side of this you know, existential crisis, we always have more jobs that we couldn't see on the front end of this thing. So I don't know, maybe this time it's different. Um, certainly the point you just made, that for the first time, digital technologies, it certainly isn't just one type of technology and it certainly isn't just robots. Digital technologies um, are unbundling tasks from jobs, which is what automation does, has been doing for manual work for almost a century now. And that's what got uh, the short end of the stick. So for the first time, we've gone from blue collar workers to white collar workers that are seeing the threat of maybe their job being able to be done someplace else 
or the job being able to be done by an algorithm. Uh, so in both cases, that puts downward pressure on their wages and increases unemployment. These are not small issues to deal with. They're profound. Uh, and maybe we will have to get to that place where we're talking about what kind of income supports do we offer people that are engineers, that are software developers, that are architects, that are accountants, that are lawyers. Like, what do we do to, to protect the incomes of people that are already at the higher end of the income spectrum when we're doing such a bad job of those that are at the bottom of the income spectrum? So these are like very challenging questions, don't get me wrong. But I'm not confident that the robots are going to eat all of the jobs or that technology is going to destroy everything. It's certainly a new world we're going into, and um, I might have to eat my hat on this one. Uh, but even if it is true that uh, more people are going to lose their jobs or lose incomes, and really that's the thing to pay, pay attention to. Technology not just lowers wages or lowers incomes because of loss of jobs, but it also lowers prices. So the question is, are prices falling because of digital technologies at a more rapid rate than wages? If that's true, then our quality of life may or may not be uh, impacted. But if our wages are falling faster than prices, then we've got a problem. Yeah. Although which prices, I suppose, right? I mean, uh, if you look at the housing market. Yeah, always for instance, true. <laughs> always true. And that's why the whole thing about inflation and uh, prices depends on what you package. I just saw that uh, Stats Canada has put out a personal inflation calculator. So depending on what sort of things you have in your in your bu uh, budget, is your inflation going up? Or is, your, or is it kind of tracking that of the CPI, which is the way the consumer price index, which is historically the way we've measured inflation. So we're getting much more bespoke in even our statistics. <laughs> well, it should be interesting. I mean, my, I'm going to pay less, I think, pound for pound for my PlayStation 5 than I did for my PlayStation, well, than my mother did for my PlayStation 2, but I'll never <laughs> own a home, <laughs> right? But that's exactly it, right? So since everybody needs a place to live, that's why I go back to basic services. Like if we make sure our social infrastructure in, is in as good order as we can have. You know, if I was to say, to, uh, was it last week? Two weeks ago, I heard from people at the city of Toronto that 37% of childcare capacity in um, in the city of Toronto, in regulated childcare centers, are being used. If I was to tell you, as the Ministry of Transport, well, in the biggest city of our uh, province, 37% um, of our roads and bridges are functioning. So we should be okay. Y you would know you have a problem, right? Sounds like America. Right. Social infrastructure is every bit as important as physical infrastructure to just helping people and businesses get the job done. So if you want to reopen the economy, if you want to get back to so-called normal, if you want to just recover to what was pre-pandemic, which I hope we want, I hope we have bigger aspirations than that. But if that's what you want, you've got to make sure the social infrastructure is in place, which goes back to my point about basic income. Are we better off when we have more income or when we need less of it? because we're giving each other better together. It strikes me, I mean, I find that compelling. I mean, the, you know, the sort of classic critiques of, of UBI, it, it doesn't, it entices people not to work. That seems sort of silly. 
too expensive. That seems maybe more plausible. Entrenches low wages and capitalism. That's the critique I find most persuasive. Inflationary pre- uh, pressure and so on and so forth. I mean, it seems to me that all of those actually can be put aside compared to the bigger critique that seems increasingly compelling to me, which is it just doesn't deliver enough bang for our buck compared to childcare, education, housing, pharmacare, dental care, and so on, right? Is that is that the sense that I'm getting here? Well, that's certainly the argument I've been making for years now is what's the opportunity cost? How much does it cost? How much are you talking about, first of all? Let's talk about who gets it, how much is it, and then we talk about the price tag. And then you take a look at that price tag and you say, what else could I buy for that amount of money? And would I buy more social solidarity? Because 100% you're going to have to ask people to pay more in taxes. Right. So what are people getting for more in taxes? How are you building, yes, every step of the way, rather than saying you pay more and you won't get the thing that you're paying more for? How long? Let's say we wave a magic wand and everybody gets $2,000 a month, whether they work or not. Uh, how long do you think that consensus is going to last when the paycheck comes through? Or when you file your taxes and you find out you owe X amount and you didn't see any improvement in your life at all. It's just not going to hold politically. And or lose support. I mean, this is why I think the libertarian argument for basic income is disconcerting is because that's also coupled with probably losing some of those social supports, at least in their imagination of it, right? Yeah, though I have to say it always has um, made me pause when I realized that A universal basic income has also been a progressive dream, probably the most eloquently voiced by Martin Luther King Jr. So it has always had this strange um, polarity to it. Uh, Because if you are interested in dignity and decency of all lives, you realize money is part of it. And I guess I'm just trying to get at it in a way that, keeps as many people together in this mission as possible for as long as possible. Though I fully recognize that too many people have not enough money. They just simply have not enough money, that that is the problem. So I recognize there's a short-term problem, which is not enough money, and a longer-term problem, which is to satisfy those problems, we need to work together and we need to stay together to work together. And sometimes it looks like people like me that argue against a basic income actually have a black hole where my heart should be. Uh, But I I assure you, my life's mission has been to try and boost the economy from the bottom up because I think that's how we do good and we do well, uh, both macroeconomically and socially. So I think there is a way out of this morass, but it's not as obvious a path as you might think, by just simply saying, cut everybody a $2,000 check or whatever the check size is. I also think your distinction between income and not needing to spend money or or services is an important one. I mean, you know, it's one thing to get a check for $2,000. It's another thing to not have to pay for X, Y, or Z, pharma pharma care, for instance, not having to pay for drugs, right? I mean, it... A hundred percent. You know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the living wage uh, movement, but the living wage uh, calculators uh, that are community-based, they're based in, they're place-based. The biggest variant in how much a living wage will be 
is literally whether a family with two kids, one of whom is preschool, has access to subsidized childcare. In communities where they do have access to subsidized childcare, the living wage is a lot lower. It helps businesses too, right? You don't have to pay as much if you want to be a living wage employer and you happen to live in a community that offers uh, really good quality childcare. But that's the that's also the Canadian advantage compared to the Americans for auto. That we have universal Medicare for at least doctors and hospitals is a step up from what the employers have to pay in the United States. They have the same protections there, but it literally costs the employer more to be able to offer the same protections to those workers. So you know, this is the lesson we keep learning over and over again. And it's like, honestly, yes, we are better off when we have more income. We should want that. We should argue for that. We should look for that in all sorts of ways. But we're also better off when we need less income because we are taking care of each other. That might even be in the form of, a, you know, a shorter work week, same amount of income, but actually more free time. That would be also a windfall for so many households, but you still get to that place where there's some people that don't have enough money. It's not that they want a four day week. They don't even have a two day week. They can't earn enough and what they earn isn't enough to sustain them. So how are we gonna sustain one another when we need one another so dramatically? Everything we've seen in the pandemic, you can completely transport that to the economic conversation. We are totally interdependent. If you don't believe me, take a look at how many rich people are pissed off when there aren't enough clerks in the grocery store when it comes time to check out. We need one another. I want to close very quickly on this question. Uh, and there's a reason I'm asking it last rather than first. Uh, there's just no chance of this happening in Canada anyway, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I get this. But no, okay. No, I should, I should qualify that. There's no chance of a single universal basic income happening in Canada anyway. But it is possible that through the federal government, we are looking at a series of minimum guaranteed incomes kind of coming in by through the back door, like the Canada Workers Benefit, which says you can earn a certain amount of money and get it topped up. So it effectively offers a floor in uh, earnings, the Canada Recovery Benefit, which is for people that don't qualify for EI. They also get a minimum benefit per month. So these are forms of basic income that are creeping in through the back door. And the question is, which are good ones and which are bad ones? I mean, I would argue that if you're going to do EI reform, jobless benefits reform, you've got to do something about the fact that we have so many minimum wage workers who cannot cut it on 55% of their earnings. You need some kind of floor. So the minute you start talking about floors, you're talking about a form of basic income. But in all the things that I've been telling you about, I'm talking about basic incomes that are tied to people that are good workies. You know, they've got a work ethic. You know, what are you going to do about the people that can't work, that are too sick to work, um, or maybe too indigent? I mean, there are people that are lazy, right? So, like, what are you going to do about people? that are not working for one reason or another, either chronically or episodically, uh, whether they're dealing with some kind of health problem or some kind of crisis, or they just have not been able to get to the place where they can be employed. And once you're scarred 
too, once you're starting too late in life, you just can't make it into the system. So my, I guess my point here is um, we are not going to have a single basic income in Canada, but we may be moving towards a system of guaranteed incomes for different subgroups, which we already have now, right? We have a, a guaranteed income for children uh, and a guaranteed income for seniors. So maybe there will be some classes of the working age that have also guarantees if, and, and we'll see if that ever extends to social assistance being improved. Well, I, I could talk about this all day, but that brings us to time. So let me end by saying thank you very much for joining me uh, today. It's my pleasure, David. I really appreciate the invitation. And as always, thanks to all the folks who make this show possible, uh, Mira Ahmad, Luke Gilmore, and the magician himself, Aaron Reynolds, who uh, somehow makes me sound so much more competent than I, than I really am. Although, don't tell any potential employers that. All right, that brings us, <laughs> uh, as, again, as I mentioned, that brings us to time. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we hope to see you back here in a couple of weeks.